Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. The reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. We're reading out of the NIV. Read along with me. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thank you. Joel, for the reading, and thank you, everybody, for coming along today, and thanks for the opportunity to preach to you today. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to hopefully encourage everyone at Ridley, and also just for the practice I, you know, again, preaching in front of my peers and in front of the staff here before I go out into the world and do more preaching in the future. I want to start off today by getting you, if you can, to imagine the last time you were at a funeral. I've only really been to a couple of funerals. The first one was my grandpa's. He was in his late 70s, and before he died, he'd suffered from Alzheimer's for maybe 10 years. He used to break out of the retirement village where he lived in town and escape uh, to the farm we owned on the edge of town. So he knew enough still to know he wanted to get to the farm, but he never really knew what he wanted to do when he got there. He was also in a fair bit of pain, I think we realised later, for some pain in his jaw that um, yeah, caused him more pain than we realised because he just wasn't able to communicate what was going on and uh, what was causing him so much frustration. So he was, he was physically safe and he was known, but still a rough way, a rough end to someone's life, I think. More recently, I went to my grandma's funeral. She lived maybe another five years and she had a few short stints in hospital, but she was pretty much home until the last week of her life. And when she died, she had a son, two daughters, a daughter-in-law, all by her side and she was cogent and comfortable in a hospital where all the new nurses knew her and the newer kids and her grandkids. It's that kind of small town. So overall, you know, not a bad way to go. And if you had to weigh them up, you'd have to say that grandma had it easier than grandpa. Now, if you don't believe that there's anything after death, then that's where this discussion ends for you. I mean, if you're that person, the pagan warrior culture possibly make a lot of sense where the best we can hope for is to die gloriously doing some great deed. If you're a little more medicated and middle class, maybe the best you think we can hope for is a comfortable life and then a comfortable death. However, for most of us here, we don't really have those options. We do believe that there is something after death. And so the question of what happens then is so much more important for us than how comfortable our last week or our last year was. Even if you're not a Christian or you're not really sure what you believe, as soon as you open yourselves up to yourself up to the idea of spirituality or having a soul, 
suddenly this question becomes really, really important. Now, it's impossible for anyone to check on this, and I know that sometimes, or so, sorry, I know that how something feels is not necessarily a good guide to how good it actually is. But I can say for a fact that in the case of my grandma and grandpa, their funerals felt very different. One was genuinely light and joyful and the other was not. The big difference between them was that grandma had living faith in God and grandpa didn't. There's one more funeral I want to talk about because I don't want this sermon to be just about an abstract answer to a problem that for a lot of us feels like it's at least a few decades away and so before it's going to be something we need to face. And I want to be general about this too because this is the funeral of my friend's one-month-old baby. This happened last year. I couldn't make it because of restrictions, but I did watch the live stream. And it's easily one of the saddest but most inspiring services I've ever seen. I really genuinely can't imagine the sadness they were feeling on that day, which I'm sure was very, very real. But still amongst it, my friends were able to speak in a real way about the hope they had for seeing their child in heaven. It was wildly, wildly impressive. Now, I mentioned this funeral, which is easily the hardest one, because I want us to feel that this is a live issue for us. The more we grow in love for other people, you know, whether that's um, the people in our family, our kids, or just those around us, the more we have to feel the sting of death. And this question about what happens next has to really shift, I think, from just being a want to a need to know what happens. That's what the sermon today is really about, about hope, hope in the face of death, hope at a funeral. While you don't need to have buried a loved one recently to be hungry for this hope, the Thessalonians had, and this meant that this question was a burning one for them. Paul knows this and he knows that they need an answer that is strong and reliable and grounded something, grounded something real. That's the assurance that Paul gave the Thessalonians, that because Jesus rose from the dead, we would too. That being in Christ wasn't just something that mattered now for this life, but it mattered for all time. And that, un that, that unity with Christ wouldn't be broken by death. We may all believe that in our heads, and I'm sure we've all heard it many, many times. But if we can make that step between believing in our heads and knowing in our hearts, we'll know why my friends weren't crazy or deluded to be able to speak with hope at their son's funeral. And we'll have the chance of being able to respond in a similarly uh, gracious and joyful manner where we're inevitably confronted uh, by mortality. So the passage we've had read to us is a very short passage about a very big topic. We've got six whole verses here about Jesus' return. I think it's useful to think of the contrast to having four complete Gospels about Jesus' life on earth. It obviously doesn't mean that Jesus' return is an afterthought or something tacked on. It's always been there, but it's extremely important to remember when we try and work out what this passage says about how much less information we have about this event than we do about Jesus' life on earth. So this passage talks about Jesus' second coming, but the, the focus isn't on the mechanics of how that happens, but on the certainty that gives us. Paul is trying to reassure the Thessalonians who, just like us, are wondering what happens when they or their loved ones die. You can see that very easily with how he frames the passage. He starts in verse 13 saying that he doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He ends in verse 18 telling the Thessalonians and us to encourage one another with these words. Now, it's pretty handy when you're writing a sermon to have Paul telling you exactly what you're supposed to do with the passage. So please, be encouraged, be hopeful. 
The question I raised at the start, though, wasn't just if we should be hopeful, but if we have a reason to be hopeful. As I've said, like verse 15 helps us answer this, where Paul says that since we believe that Jesus died and rose again through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. When Paul says this, he's repeating core Christian doctrine, and it really echoes the early Christian creeds. As you all know, the most well-known place you can see this repeated is in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, where Paul reminds the Corinthians of what he taught them after he was first converted in the form of a creed which he likely received from the Jerusalem church when he visited very early on in his Christian life. This is important for us because that creed includes that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not just it's not a new idea that Paul's come up just as a comforting thing for the Thessalonians or you know, later believers. So when Paul went, wants to encourage the Thessalonians and give them something real, he doesn't come up with this new idea or argument or this, give them the sort of inane good wishes that people throw around when they don't know what to say. He goes back to his core teaching that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, this way that he argues is important for us because it reinforces how our core Christian beliefs have implications for us. Our faith is about much more than correctly understanding what happened in the past. It's about connecting those truths to our lives today. Paul unequivocally connects Jesus' resurrection in the past to our resurrection in the future. So importantly, if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and if you've experienced that truth in your life, you should have the same level of security in the hope that you also will be raised. This is the essence of faith, not that we believe blindly, but that we believe in what we haven't yet seen on the basis of what we have seen and experienced. That's why my grandma's funeral felt different. And that's why my friends were able to talk about their baby with real hope. It's not grounded in the most fervent good wishes of any one of those funerals that there was something uh, to be hopeful for, but it's grounded in the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection and his promise for us. As I hope I've shown, and I hope it's clear, Paul's purpose is to reassurance, reassure the Thessalonians and not to give that much detail about Jesus' second coming. It doesn't let us completely off the hook from grappling with it uh, as much as it can be a minefield. So I'm going to have a quick uh, little go now of just a few key points. So it seems like the Thessalonians were specifically worried that the believers who had already died would somehow miss out when Jesus came back. There's an underlying assumption here that Jesus is coming back a very, in the very near future, in the first century, so it's going to be a minority of people who have already died, which is obviously a different uh, situation to us when we know there's a uh, you know, there's millennia of saints who will be raised before we uh, go up to Jesus. So Paul says after the dead are raised first, then the living believers are going to be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. You could ask some practical questions if this means a third of the world would be sleeping through when this happens or if Jesus is going to be visible from every point um, in the world or just one. And if you're sceptical if you're skeptical about clouds in general, there's a mention of Jesus returning Colossians 3, 4, which is very short, but doesn't mention clouds at all. However, when God does appear in the Bible, it's often out of a cloud, such as at the Transfiguration or Ascension or throughout the Old Testament, including a uh, Daniel's vision about the Son of Man coming on the clouds in heaven. So I don't, I don't mean to be dismissive, but I think it's, um, you know, as much as this is a consistent picture with how God's appeared at other times, there really isn't uh, a lot of detail here to answer many of the practical questions about what this will look like. And we're in danger if we try and uh, seize on a very small number of verses to make determinations or assessments about what will happen in the details. One thing that is useful to examine, though, is a term that's used for Jesus coming down to earth, which is parousia. 
Perusia had a well understood meaning in Paul's time where it described the practice when someone high ranking was visiting a city for the residents to go out and greet the visitors and then very crucially to accompany them back inside. It was used about Roman emperors on tour and it's also used in Acts 28.15 to describe how Roman believers greeted Paul when he was outside that city. However, just like I don't think there's enough detail to say exactly how everyone in the world will experience Jesus' return, I don't think we have enough detail on these passages at least to explain exactly what the parousia looks like. Now, this lack of detail, my timidity perhaps about making a call on it, would be really problematic if the passage was primarily an explanation about what happens during the second coming. But it's clearly not. So Dan Martin, one of the commentators I read, summed it up really well when he said, if we understand the passage as an attempt to comfort the grieving, we find it complete. If we approach the passage expecting an eschatological treatise, we experience frustration. I think this is a really good reminder that it's really hard to get details out of the Bible that the author didn't intend to convey. I think it's really clear that Paul was talking primarily about hope and the certainty of our hope in this passage. So as I draw to a close, that's what I want to focus on. What Paul does say is that the future resurrection of a, of a believer is as sure as Jesus' resurrection. So if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be too. And we've all heard this before, no, no doubt, innumerable times, some way at least. However, what's going to transform our lives is when we're able to really deeply connect the reality of our Saviour's resurrection to the reality of our inevitable expiration. That's how we'll find on to and hold that real hope be able to give an answer to our friends. So the very last thing I want to say is to remind us all about how Paul constructs his argument. When he answers the Thessalonians, he does it by connecting their doctrine to their lives. We're in an evangelical college, so presumably everyone here has a pretty high view of scripture and the importance of knowing God, knowing so what God has shown us there. I just want to end on this note. This passage should be really encouraging for us. Teaching the Bible well and connecting it to people's lives can really change them. There are a lot of very good marketing slogans out there in marketing campaigns, but nothing else can give us this genuine hope as you approach you know, the end of your life or grapple with these sort of questions in someone else's life. Right? God can, and everyone who's here trying to teach his word well is a part of that mission. So as I end, I really want to end on a positive note to everyone here to please be encouraged about what you're doing because it's something really, really worthwhile. Thank you.